Hello and welcome to this very special podcast on a particularly hot issue, COVID vaccination. It's a collaboration between St. Emlyn's, the Royal College of Emergency Medicine and the University of Manchester. And I am very, very privileged to be joined by an all-star cast. So I'm Rick Boddy and the all-stars are... I'm Simon Carley, I'm Professor of Emergency Medicine here in Manchester. I'm Charlie Raylor, I'm a clinical doctoral research fellow from the National Institute of Health Research. I'm Pam Barley, I'm a professor in medical virology at the University of Manchester. I'm Paul Clapper, I'm Professor of Clinical Virology at the University of Manchester. So if you followed our Journal Club series through the first wave of the pandemic, you'll be familiar with this all-star cast and you'll no doubt be a lot wiser for having listened to those uh, sessions. I certainly did. But today we're going to pick up on this very, very hot issue of vaccination. Now, I know that emotions are running very high with regard to vaccinations. We want to take a bit of a deep dive into the topic and use a lot of the expertise that we've got on hand to make sense of the evidence uh, that is around and some of the things that are going on around the evidence. So the first thing, of course, we've now got three vaccines in the UK that are approved for use. We've got the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, we've got the Pfizer vaccine, and we've got the Moderna vaccine. And they work a little bit differently. Uh, so first thing, let's cover how they actually work. So Pam, would you be happy to explain to us, let's take the Oxford vaccine first. How does it actually work? So the Oxford vaccine is based on an adenovirus vector. So adenovirus is a, a common respiratory virus. Many of us get adenovirus infections. Some of them can be quite serious, but, but it's a normal circulating virus. So the the principle is that you take a, a bit of the viral genome, the, the one that you're trying to produce a vaccine for, in this case it's the spike protein um, of the SARS-CoV-2, and you put <clears throat> some of that viral genome into the adenovirus vector, and then the adenovirus vector will replicate and produce that protein, and that protein can be used to immunise. Now, human adenovirus is a bit can be a bit controversial um, because you know potentially you could already have antibodies against it or you could react against it yourself. So the Oxford vaccine is based on, on a chimpanzee adenovirus that the uh, genome for the spike protein has been inserted into. And then that chimp adenovirus has been used um, to infect uh, people and, and get into cells and produce a, an antibody response and, and a T-cell response uh, against the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein. And how, how do we ensure that that infection essentially within this adenovirus isn't harmful uh, it's an attenuated so, so it's it, it's been manipulated so that it doesn't cause disease in in a, a, a human yeah and it, it's essentially a chimpanzee vaccine yeah, it's a chimpanzee normally a chimpanzee virus will not infect humans so it's a sort of double lock safety yeah. feature and there's been comment about the speed at which, sorry, I was going to say, there's comment about the speed at which the vaccination, the, the vaccine has arisen. Of course, this was a vaccine that was being worked on for Ebola. And what they've been able to do is to actually substitute a different virus protein into this same vaccine vector and very rapidly produce a SARS-CoV-2 vaccine from it. So actually a lot of the preliminary work was already in progress, but for a different virus. And it's it's worked out beautifully. Take the Ebola components out, put the the SARS components in, and you get a new vaccine. We were very lucky that the team in Oxford was very prepared yeah. for this pandemic in that regard. And then we've got, of course, the other two vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna, and they work differently and they're quite clever. Paul, can you explain how, how that works? 
they're very clever. They're a product of, of modern molecular biology. And essentially what you do is you inject into your cells messenger RNA. And the messenger RNA tells your ribosomes to produce protein. And in this case, it produces virus protein. So it produces the antigenic components of the virus within the cell without giving you infection of the cell. The proteins emerge from the cell, your immune system interacts with them, and the cell becomes the vaccine. Incredible uh, idea to, to use it, but it works beautifully, and the vaccines are produced again very quickly. The RNA gets wrapped up in, in lipid particles, so lipid nanoparticles, and you sort of package it up into that, and that helps it to get into the cell. And this is incredibly clever technology. Simon, you've got some thoughts on this? Yeah, just questions really, because um, it is incredibly interesting what we're going on with the with what's going on with the, the, the Pfizer type vaccines. So when you say it goes into cells, which cells is it actually going into that then get the mRNA that then start producing those proteins? So which pro which cells in our human bodies are actually churning out the what well, presumably elements of the spike protein that we then mount an immune response against? So it can be any antigen presenting cell, any lymphocytes, dendritic cells, any anything that's able to present antigen so that the, the immune response can recognize that and then develop an antibody response or a t-cell response against it so essentially you're, you're injecting into the muscle cells the muscle cells produce the protein which then emerge from the cells and they interact with your your immune system and produce so so your muscle becomes the 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 vaccine or the vaccine producer so it is really clever stuff isn't it it's um, quite incredible it's a main problem with the the rna one at the moment is that it's it's not very stable because rna itself as soon as it gets out of the cell it, it will break up um so that's why it has to be kept at very cold temperatures but they are working on new technologies that that kind of do this clever thing where they fold the rna into a particular configuration inside the lipid particle and and that keeps it stable so that should allow it to be sort of handled at much at less cold temperatures or kept at less cold temperatures so that would be a real advance if that can be made to work so some people are a little bit concerned that it's a new technology and it's not being tried out before are they is, are we right to be concerned about it uh, it's new in the sense that this is the first time that we've got a a vaccine actually rolled out from the program but the technology for it has been developing over the last 10 to 20 years and there's a large body of work that showed this would be a really good way of rapidly producing vaccines so huge amounts of work's been going on in the background getting prepared for these sort of eventualities of a new emergent virus and a rapid response to it and it really started back in in when the first of these coronaviruses emerged, SARS, and the programme of development of vaccines has been going on ever since. So although it appears to be have been produced very quickly, there's actually a background of 10 to 20 years work behind it that prove that it was, should work and prove the safety and, and efficacy of this route to vaccination. Well, that's fascinating and very reassuring. Now, we've got a lot to cover, so let's move on to the next topic. We're going to take a little bit of a a deep dive into the evidence behind these uh, these vaccines because each of the tri the vaccines has got its own phase three or phase two stroke three trial to back it up with a large number of patients and they've been published so we'll uh, make the references available online but you can find them at the New England Journal of Medicine for the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine and in the Lancet for the Oxford vaccine. 
And so I can give you a quick rundown of what those trials are. So for the Pfizer vaccine, we had a phase two or three trial, phase two slash three, where the two phases are essentially rolled into one, mainly in the United States, but there were six countries that took part and over 43,000 participants in that trial. They had two doses of the vaccine, 21 days apart, and they looked at the efficacy of the vaccine, um, with a primary endpoint being COVID-19 occurring at least seven days after the second dose. And that's in patients who didn't have evidence of infection up to seven days after the second dose. And they showed efficacy for that primary endpoint. So there were eight infections in the vaccine group against 169 in the placebo group. And you can work out the vaccine efficacy as a percentage. So that's a kind of a tr- what we call the attributable risk, which is around about 95% efficacy of the vaccine. And they did a lot of safety analyses as well. Uh, there were really no serious uh, adverse events occurring in the vaccine group. A number of, it's quite common that people got side effects. A sore arm was most common. You got fatigue and headache, fever occasionally. Um, and it was more common that you get those adverse events in young people. And there was only one case of severe COVID-19 in the vaccine group versus nine in the uh, placebo group. So that was the Pfizer trial. We then had the Oxford vaccine trial where they combined four RCTs uh, in the UK, Brazil and South Africa. Two of them were phase one stroke two trials, and they only eff- but they only assessed the efficacy in the phase two stroke three trials. So again, large number of participants. I think there were only over 20,000 participants in this study. Again, the participants got two doses. There were two different regimens that we might talk about, low and then standard or standard and then standard. And they looked very similarly at the primary outcome of um, virologically confirmed COVID-19 after the second dose. And they found that at least least 14 days after the second dose, COVID infections had occurred in 0.5% of the vaccine group versus 1.7% of the placebo group. And they worked out that gives you a vaccine efficacy of around 70%. And again, no serious uh, adverse events to to be concerned about. And then finally, just quickly to tell you, the Moderna trial took place in the United States. It was a phase three trial of 99 centers. um, And they stopped the study after the first interim analysis because they met a pre-specified efficacy endpoint, meaning that there was overwhelming evidence that the vaccine had good efficacy. So again, very, very similar. It was a placebo-controlled trial, and the primary endpoint was efficacy of preventing COVID-19 at least 14 days after the second injection. And the vaccine efficacy in that trial was ninety around about 95% once again, again with no adverse safety signals. So some really important trials there. I've mentioned the phases of the trials, and I think it's probably important that we just stop and have a think about what what the phases are and what that means. So, Charlie, you can tell us what what is a phase one trial, a phase two trial, and a phase three trial? Yeah, sure, Rick. So uh, the phase one to three trials are the human trials of a vaccine. And it's important to note that a lot of work goes on uh, before those trials in uh, the discovery of vaccine candidates and then some um, pre-human testing. So a phase one trial is with uh, healthy volunteers where you're primarily trying to assess the safety of the vaccine. Is this vaccine safe? Normally, this trial involves tens of people. So we're talking about 20 to 80. Phase two trial is normally run after a phase one trial is complete. And a phase two trial uh, looks at things beyond safety, including dosing, the schedule of the vaccination, the method of delivery of the vaccine. And it also looks at the immunogenicity. How is the body reacting to the vaccine? 
This sample size is normally the hundreds, classically 100 to 200 people. And then the final human phase, phase three trials, which has run after the phase one trials finished and the phase two trials finished, the phase three trial looks at the safety again, but also the efficacy. Does this vaccine do what we want it to do? The population involved in the phase three trial is classically the target population. Uh, so in the COVID trials, it's anyone who is liable to catch it. And the sample size for a phase three trial is generally in the thousands of people, the tens of thousands of people, so 10 to 30,000 people. For an example, the Pfizer timeline from vaccine uh, for vaccine development is roughly as follows. The COVID-19, the first outbreak started in December 2019, so we think. The pathogen was identified a month later. And then five months later, in May, Pfizer started its enrolment into phase one. And it did a phase two trial in parallel at the same time. And then seven months later from the first outbreak in December, they started enrolment in their phase three trial, all successful. And then 12 months later from the first outbreak, the first vaccination happened in the UK on the 8th of December at 6.30 for Margaret Keenan, who was 91 in Coventry. So the vaccine development timeline there has been compressed massively down, but it's been compressed in with efficiencies and with infinite resources, as far as infinite will go. Uh, very briefly, there are some comparative timelines I want to draw. So polio was first identified, uh, well, was first, there was a first outbreak in 1894. 14 years later, they found out what was causing it. They found a pathogen. 36 years later, they started looking at vaccine development. And then 59 years later, they developed the first inactivated vaccine, the Sorx vaccine. Hepatitis B was first identified in 1965. And 16 years later, they had the first generation vaccine with the one we use today, developed 21 years later. And now, in, the, the, in a, a reasonably comparable example of uh, the human papillomavirus, human papillomavirus vaccine, it took six years. So we've gone from 59 years to 21 years to six years to one year. And it's not just that, the supply chains have also been phenomenal. So the phases I've gone through there um, are all really important, but I'd also like to highlight that this is some phenomenal work that's gone on. And it's not by making scientific shortcuts either. As you've nicely explained, Charlie, we've gone through all of the phases of the trials as we usually would. We've just shortened the timescales quite considerably. And Paul, you have some thoughts about how we might have achieved that in the modern era. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's come against a background of, of considerable work be, before in, in developments in mod, molecular biology that have actually facilitated this and also work on going on in on vaccines for emerging virus infections. So there's development work behind us that has actually speeded up these particular vaccines. There are yet more vaccines coming for SARS-CoV-2. Um, we have one on trial in the in the UK at present, and there are about another 80-odd vaccines in development around the world. So these are the first, and, and the others are, are, are following a more conventional timescale to, to introduction. But these, these three have been uh, introduced with magnificent pace. And I think, you know, the science behind them shows that they are the best we have, have developed so far in terms of vaccinology. 
Uh, can I just add to that? Absolutely, I think it's it's fantastic the you know the speed and the science that's that's behind these vaccines. But I think one other very pragmatic thing to think about is that you know each phase of a trial is is expensive. So you know normally you'd want your phase one results before you went on to phase two and and so on. Whereas because of the situation with the pandemic, it made sense to sort of compress them all and and put that extra money in to be able to run them all. Um, you know, as quickly as, as possible. So I think that's another quite pragmatic reason why um, it's been able to be done so quickly. Really helpful to know that. Now, Simon, I know you've got some questions about what we mean by efficacy. Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to play the role of a little bit of scepticism here, if that's okay, um, when we talk about the the effectiveness of these vaccines. Because I love the way that these trials have been done, that they're real-world trials that people have been vaccinated and then we've seen whether or not they develop the disease. That's obviously absolutely what we need to do. But what we don't know, I don't think, is whether patients were actually exposed to the disease. So I've been working in COVID hospitals and I've dealt with hundreds and hundreds of patients with COVID, never caught it, and have only recently been vaccinated. So when we talk about these high levels of um, effectiveness, the 90%, do we actually know whether or not that's because people are being very good with their hands, face and space? Or is it really that the vaccine is 90%? And how are we ever going oh, to unpick that one? Because that, that, that is a challenge, I think. Yeah, I guess the only thing that you could base that on is the, is the comparison between the control population and the, the test population. So presumably the ones who were vaccinated and the ones who had placebo were both you know, in the same environment and had the same chance of catching the virus. So I guess it's the difference between the two rather than the fact that the whole population was exposed. Yeah, so I wonder whether we'll see some of those figures come down over time, perhaps as people do have what appears to be a failure of vaccination, but we know all vaccine, no, there are no vaccines as far as I'm aware, which are 100% effective. So whether those numbers will come down. But yes, for me, what I saw in the data was that the difference between the two groups, the vaccinated versus non-vaccinated, is really the evidence that this, that this does work. The magnitude of it, I think, might change um, if I read the data correctly, but it's certainly very profound for things like the Pfizer vaccine, the difference between the two groups. Um, I've, I've got a question to Paul and Pam. Um, so uh, the primary outcome, the efficacy we're talking about here is symptomatic COVID-19. Um, the, the majority of the testing in these uh, studies by their protocol was when someone was symptomatic. So there are some other things that uh, you hope a vaccine would do. And I want to know what your thoughts are on that. And I, I suppose they are. Do they prevent asymptomatic infection? But moreover, do they prevent transmission? What do you guys think? Right. <laughs> <laughs> are you a betting man, Paul? <laughs> well, about 25% or so of cases of, of COVID are asymptomatic. There is absolutely no reason to think that if you are protected against infection, it's going to make any difference whether you get you are going to go on to develop asymptomatic or symptomatic infection. The point of the vaccine is to protect you from infection in the first place. So you, you neither get symptomless infection or symptomatic infection. The the vaccine the, Simon's quite right about the vaccine efficacy that actually the real test is put the vaccine out there, see if the vaccinated develop disease or not, and monitor 
for that. And we have actually got a fantastic experimental conditions going for this because we've got a second wave of COVID at the same time as we are vaccinating. So a lot of people are being exposed to COVID now who have been vaccinated. So the real figures will de- will will actually emerge in time, as they do for any vaccine. Every year we vaccinate against influenza. We select the best components in the vaccine and we send it out. And then we look at the end of the year to see whether or not the vaccines actually worked. That's when we get the real test of, of efficacy, measuring infections in those who have who have been vaccinated versus those who haven't we're going to get the same in this the early indications are that i mean the the best that you can get from a phase three study is that it looks good it's worth trying Um, the real test is now as we're as we're actually vaccinating it's worth pointing out that in the phase three trial of the oxford vaccine they did actually screen people every 14 days for evidence of asymptomatic infection um, which is different to the other trials. And in fact, the vaccine efficacy for asymptomatic COVID was only 7.8%, giving you an overall efficacy of 46% for any positive swab. But I, I imagine, uh, Pam and Paul, that what's really important is preventing those severe cases. If, you've got, if, if we end up with a lot of asymptomatic cases, it's not a big burden on the health service. It's not having a big effect effect on people's lives. It's the severe infections that we really want to prevent. Nobody minds that you know we get some mild infections as as a result of uh, vaccine breakthrough. So infection in those who've been vaccinated. What you do worry about is severe infection in those who have been vaccinated, or as has happened in some vaccine trials in the past, actually accentuating the infection as a result of vaccination, which has happened in trials in the past. Um, A good example was was, uh, a vaccine which was given to protect against respiratory syncytial virus. The vaccine was rapidly withdrawn because when when those who had been vaccinated were exposed to respiratory syncytial virus, they actually got more severe disease. That does not seem to be happening with SARS, which is really good news. Mm-hmm. That's good. But the, the, the fact that it doesn't necessarily prevent, present asymptomatic infections presumably has implications for our social distancing. And that if you're vaccinated, you still need to be aware that you might transmit the infection to somebody who's not vaccinated. And if they're vulnerable, then that's got implications. Absolutely. Until we get a sufficient level of immunity in the population to stop the virus transmitting from an infected to a non-infected individual, then we're going to have to maintain precaution all the way through. It is not an instant fix. It's going to take time to get the population vaccinated and get sufficient of the population vaccinated to stop the transmission of the virus. So I think what you're saying there, Paul, is that we really do need to maintain the social aspects and the psychological aspects of of this control. I think I'm already seeing it. I'm hearing the words um, from people. I've already had the vaccine. I'll be fine. Yeah. And that is amongst people who I would consider to be pretty well informed. And that is a little bit of a worry for me. I think that there is a concern that we'll relax. And particularly as we're, we're not necessarily following, and I'm sure it's one of the things you're going to talk about, Rick, is we're not necessarily following the strict regimes that we did in the trials now in clinical practice. I was going to say, so the message isn't, I've had the vaccine, I'm fine. The message is, I've had the vaccine, I'm probably going to be okay, but I might still pose a risk to someone else. Is that the yeah. message? 
and also actually charlie you're not completely fine because it's not 100 percent. so it's just less of a gamble but it's still a gamble if you don't take um, ppe and protection seriously so yeah absolutely agree with paul and all of you just got to keep going with this sadly yeah. And I think the other thing to throw into that mix is we don't yet know how long the immunity is going to last for. That's still to be decided, to be confirmed with the trials. So that brings us on to a really important point now, um, which is about the second dose, uh, thinking about the duration of immunity. Because if you've been following the news or if you're in the NHS, of course, which is our audience, um, you will know that there's a national guidance uh, in the UK, at least, that we should defer the second dose of the vaccine for 12 weeks. Um, now, NHS staff have been being vaccinated with the Pfizer vaccine. And of course, in the trial, there were two doses. And uh, in the Pfizer vaccine trial, I think they were given uh, 21 days apart. Now, we didn't study late doses of the vaccine in the trial so it came as a little bit of a surprise to see that all the doses are being delayed by 12 weeks. But the rationale is that if you delay the second dose, then you can give more people the first dose and therefore you might get better coverage overall. Um, and when people have looked at the data from the Pfizer trial, you can see that in between doses one and two, the incidence of infections in the vaccine group was such that the, we could describe the vaccine efficacy uh, rate as 53%. So the principle is there, I think, that we could vaccinate a lot of people and get 53% protection, or we could focus on vac vac uh, vaccinating people thoroughly, ensuring they've got 95% of the uh, protection, but in smaller numbers. So what do you, what do you take, what, what are your thoughts on this? Um, what, is there good evidence for us to trust delaying the second dose? Well, of course, this is a decision that has been made with the, the Joint Committee on, on Vaccination in the UK. And we have not seen the full data that the JCVI actually reviewed in order to come to this decision. We have to hope that there is a lot more data than has been published that on which they can uh, base their recommendation. It is against a background where we've got a huge second wave of, of COVID infection occurring and a, a, a real need to bring this under control. And there is a hope that a single vaccination will help to bring that under control. Will it actually make things worse? We don't yet know. It's a huge experiment. And it has been criticised by the British um, clinical immunologists and many groups around the world, including BioNTech themselves, who say there's no data to support this. Um, but we are where we are, and we've, we're balancing two things, trying to control an epidemic at the same time as preventing long-term consequences, which would be continued epidemics of, of COVID infection. Really difficult balancing act. Is this a pr pragmatic solution? Well, the experiment will tell us. Yeah, just on that point about the experiment, Paul, I mean, that Rick's doing amazing work with Falcon and Condor about diagnostic testing. We've got the recovery trial, which is a therapeutic platform, um, looking at therapeutics and doing amazing work on a big scale. It does beg the question why we're not doing the experiment as an experiment and actually looking at uh, different dosage regimes. We've got a, a, a potential for an enormous, massive natural experiment here to do it at three weeks, to do it four weeks, five weeks, six weeks, all the way up to 12 weeks and get some data. And we get that data really quickly. So I, I do think, and I just hope that somebody out there is actually thinking about doing that at the moment. 
Yeah, I thought there was some interesting data in, in the papers between the three different vaccines as well, because certainly the Moderna vaccine, I mean, I think it states quite explicitly in that paper that, that the antibody response was good after the first dose, but that the T-cell mediated response wasn't there until you gave the second dose. So I think that that's a bit of a concern for that one. And, and similarly, the Pfizer one, you know, I think I think some of the evidence that's being, or some of the rationale behind um, the, the thinking for the Pfizer one is that they're saying that the um, 50 odd percent efficacy is an average over the, the time between seven and, and 21 days. And so that the later you go into that time, the, the better it is. So that, you know, at three weeks, it's not 52%, it's much higher than that. It's, you know, but, but because it's an average over that time, then that's the sort of average is the 50 odd percent. But I, I just, I feel, I feel much more confident about the strategy with the Oxford vaccine. I think it, it did show in macaques that after one dose, it was, um, you know, it was okay after one dose, but I, I'm uh, much more concerned about the RNA ones, really. I think they do need two doses. So just dragging me back to the, the depths of immunology, which I really enjoyed actually at university. I've got to say it was a subject which I, I, I got a lot out of. But the importance of the T-cell response here. So your B-cells are actually producing antibodies, which is what we're all talking about, and that's what we're measuring when we're saying, you know, have you got antibodies to this? Why are the T-cells so important in this as well? So the T-cell response is, is really important in having a, a good immune response. It helps. So the, the T-helper cell response, for example, will produce cytokines, which will help to boost your B-cell response and help you to make better antibodies and make much more specific antibodies. So the T-cell and the B-cell response can't really be separated. Both of them need to, to work well. So although I enjoyed my immunology, I wasn't listening hard enough when we did it. <laughs> and it's an interesting point about the Oxford vaccine, because when we look at the trials, uh, the, in, the, in the Oxford vaccine trial, I think the um, majority of patients actually received their second dose quite late. Often because of manufacturing issues, the protocol said that they should receive their second dose um, after 28 days. But in reality, that couldn't be delivered. So the second dose was delayed by quite some time. And therefore, I think we've got some data on delaying the second dose in the, with the Oxford vaccine. But in fact, there's no data for the Pfizer vaccine trial that has been published, at least, that we can have a look at. So it is, as you said, an experiment. And let's hope it works out. Let's. I think there's, there's, two, there's a bit of an ethical question here as well, which is, the individual perspective and the population perspective. So the individual has sat down, had the vaccine on the previous assumption that it was going to be given um, as per the manufacturer's conditions, as per the manufacturer's instructions. And that was sort of an implicit consent. You could say it was like an implicit contract between the individual and, and uh, the government. And then the population perspective is that we are in the middle of a second wave, which is looking like it might be worse than the first. And we need to play all the stops we can to try and help save lives. And it's really tricky. How do you balance those two things? And I think there's another element onto that for me, uh, which is leadership versus um, followership. And there's the leadership element of someone has to lead us from the front. Someone has to make these decisions. Someone has to make these informed decisions. They, they should be able to be questioned. We should be able to critique that. And then there's the followership side of it, which is for any organisation, the NHS to country to succeed, you have to. we have to follow instructions. But at the same time, 
we should be able to question them, query them, and try and form a feedback process. So it, it's a it's a super complex topic, and there's and there are so many very rightly uh, strong opinions on all aspects of it. I agree with you there, Charlie. But you know, in terms of the individual versus the population, if you have a if the vaccine efficacy wanes, it might of course also have an impact on the uh, population health. And is there, Pam and Paul, is there a, um, a reason for thinking that if the experiment fails and immunity wanes before your second dose, that we ultimately might need to be giving people more doses of the vaccine to get uh, adequate efficacy? Well, of course, we've never had a, a vaccine against coronavirus before, so our experience with coronavirus is limited. We do know that with the commonly circulating coronaviruses, that immunity following a natural infection starts to wane after about 12 months and you can become reinfected. The good news is is that in the reinfections, the, the infection tends to be milder. So if we, if we say that vaccination is like having a first infection, you develop immunity to it, we expect following that, that first vaccination, immunity may begin to wane and would then need to be boosted. That's true of, of of the other respiratory virus infections that we try to protect against. Classic one, of course, is influenza, where we boost every year. And part of that is because of waning immunity, and part of it is because of the, the, the mutations that occur in the virus. Why does it wane? Why did it wane? Well, it's, it's, if you think about what's important in a respiratory infection is respiratory is immunity at the mucosal surfaces where the virus is going to land. So if you've got good uh, T-cell and uh, antibody response at the mucosal surface, you can counteract the virus attaching to and penetrating the cells immediately and get control of the infection. If the virus actually enters the cell, starts to replicate, then antibody and other and T cell immunity has less access to the virus, so is less effective in clearing it. So the higher the the level of humoral immunity you can stimulate, the more protection you're going to get. But humoral immunity in general tends to be short lived because we're continuously assaulting our nose and respiratory tracts with all sorts of viruses, and it's just one of the many pathogens that we have to combat. So, you know, you put your best forces out to combat this one, but then you don't need to keep them all on full readiness, ready for the, the next invasion. Really helpful explanation. Now, we've got one more issue that I think we really need to deal with before we close this podcast. Um, and this is about pregnancy and breastfeeding. Now, that, of course, accounts for a large proportion of the population at any any given time. And... People who are pregnant or breastfeeding weren't included in any of these trials that were published. And of course, that has led to some, some frustration and disappointment. So let's try and unpick this and understand what's happened here. Were they right to exclude pregnant pe people from the trials, first of all? During pregnancy, your, your immune system is different. Okay, so you're not immune compromised as such. As I understand it, but you are your immune system behaves differently to allow you to make sure that you don't you know, mount an immune response against the fetus. So, including, I, I think if, if you'd set up a child specifically to look at how the vaccine occurs in pregnant women, then that would probably be okay. I think to include 
pregnant women it, it, as part of the um, general population that you're testing, you, you might get some some results that perhaps aren't as easy to to interpret or if you like or aren't as straightforward so i I think there is some justification for not including pregnant women um in in a large trial like that but also i think there's a lot of um concern about putting anything into a pregnant woman um you know because of historical bad experiences like you know with the the lidomide and so on so I, i i think it's sort of justified but but what i'm trying to say is i don't think that matters i think the vaccine will still be safe to give to pregnant women in in general we don't give vaccines during pregnancy because the antibody response or the humoral immune response is lower to the vaccine and you're better off if you can to delay vaccination until after pregnancy and then you get a better immune response and a more long-lived immune response in this in this situation where you're trying to show whether the vaccine is effective or not for the vast majority of the population for the reasons Pam's explained it's it's probably a good idea not to test in test the vaccine efficacy in pregnant women however now we have the vaccine we're showing it's effective and it's being rolled out a secondary trial will be will it protect pregnant women and that requires a specialist trial and as Pam says there is always caution about giving anything in pregnancy it states back to the to when uh, the, the horror era in the 1950s and 60s of thalidomide in pregnancy people have always been extremely cautious in pregnancy and this is something of a hangover from that however there are clinical trials now going on in pregnancy so vaccination in pregnancy i am sure will come but it will be done with an abundance of caution well that's fascinating insight about uh, the the considerations around pregnancy simon I think it's time for us to bring this fascinating podcast to a close. Would you like to give us a final summary? Um, I can try. The notes that I've made are longer, great conversations. Um, We are in a very interesting time at the moment. We've had these three trials come out, the two mRNA vaccines, and then the the Oxford vaccine. Fascinating to learn that it was um, developed as an adenovirus from chimpanzees. And we had a little bit of a head start with that from Rook on Ebola, which to some extent explains some of the speed that's been apparent when we're getting these vaccines together and also what we heard about the fact that because there's been so much money thrown at this we've been able to do accelerated trials and been able to do the phase one two three trials almost at the same time so the speed of which we, where we've got to now shouldn't necessarily concern us as much as actually there are many reasons why we have managed to do this in what has been an incredibly short time and charlie articulated just how long it normally takes vaccines to develop So really important point there. We talked a lot about um, efficiency. No, wrong. We talked a lot about the effectiveness of the vaccines and how the data on that is actually quite interesting and quite difficult to interpret. Um, Clearly, these are pretty effective vaccines. They're better than a lot of the other things that are out there. Um, But we don't quite know what the effect of the new process in the UK of delaying the second dose of the Pfizer is. So we're going to have to just watch that quite carefully. And then we learned that, "Mm, is this just going to be a one-off? Are we just going to need um, one set of vaccination? Well, we don't know, but there's work out there to look at that. But if we look at other coronaviruses, it may be that we end up in a situation like influenza where we're going to need boosters going into the future. And then finally, very controversial topic has caused a lot of um, traffic on things like social media. 
about pregnancy and breastfeeding. And I've got to admit, before this conversation started, I just thought that it was probably just that people were too afraid to give viruses to pregnant women. And that may well be the case. And there's certainly some element of that um, based on the past. But I hadn't really appreciated the difference in the immune response to vaccines in pregnancy and the fact that we don't normally vaccinate people in pregnancy because of the obvious concerns. But it is great to hear that we've done so much so far. We're in a great place at the moment. But the story is just beginning. There's loads more to do. And the next year, I think, is just going to be just as interesting. It's a fascinating time to be alive, fascinating time to be in medicine. And it's great to see the different specialties coming together and working so closely. That's a terrific summary. Thanks a lot, Simon. And thank you to all of our All-Star cast for joining us today. I've learned loads. Um, It's been an absolute pleasure. I hope you've enjoyed it too and learned a lot. We actually do hope to be back. Uh, with some more pearls on other hot issues around COVID-19. I know that things are tough right now. So um, keep your chin up, keep going. We'll get through this sooner or later. Thanks for listening. Take care.